I told Angie as we were leaving the house, I said, there is so much in the scripture that we have tonight. <laughs> and her answer to me was, you don't. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, can I go home with one of y'all tonight? <laughs> uh, amen. There is a lot in the scripture tonight. Uh, there is a multitude. We're going to be covering verse number 18 down through verse number 25. Uh, there is a lot in this passage of scripture. But I want to deal with two particular things that I think will pull all of the scripture together. And I think that it deals with uh, in this passage of scripture. We're going to be looking at present suffering and future glory. Present suffering and future glory. Verse number 18, the Bible said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we shall pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We'll go ahead and read down verse through verse number 27. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, tonight we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to be back in the house of God. We thank you for everyone that's made their way to be here. I pray, God, that you would, Lord, once again illuminate your word. I pray, God, that you would shine the light of your word upon our hearts. Lord, if it be for assurance of the things that we know that are to come, and Lord, if it be for help and aid as we face the things that we face in this present day, Lord, I pray that you would use your word tonight to do what only you can do and speak to the hearts of your people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Paul starts out verse number 18 with a particular word. He said, for I reckon, most of all are, most, most all of us are country folk. Uh, we know what reckon means. I reckon I'll be there. I reckon I'll do that. Or I reckon we're going to do that. Or uh, We know what that word means. But as Paul's mentioning this here, it means to compute, if you will. It means to calculate, to take into account of, or to deliberate, or to weigh out something. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is calculating something. He's looking at something through a calculated mindset. He's looking at this matter tonight, this matter as a principle, and Paul's looking at it wanting to find something particular for us or wanting to give us something particular. Martin Luther made a statement. He said, if we consider the greatness of the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, Oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. Martin Luther was making the statement, if I only look to the last day, the last day that, and talking about the day that when he'll stand before Christ, those things, and that's the Apostle Paul even in the book of Philippians said, I count all things but loss. For what? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Paul said, I count all those things but dung. I count them but loss. They're, they're nothing to me. Why? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And as Paul is looking at this, he's saying, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. They're not even... They're not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed, what? In 
us. Why is it going to be revealed in us? It's going to be revealed in us because we are in Christ. The glory is going to be revealed in us because we are in Christ. There is, and, and I, I'm sure Reese probably already knows the answer to this, this question, but if we were to ask the question, what is the chief end of man? It is that we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what God wants for mankind. We are to bring glory to Him. What did the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that we are to do all what? To the glory of God. The chief end of man is that we glorify God and that we enjoy Him forever. And Paul, in light of what he's going through, understand as uh, we have mentioned before, Paul has faced a lot of things as he writes this passage of Scripture. This is, not, this is not Paul's first day in grammar school. This is not his first day in Christianity. Paul has suffered great things throughout his life. Paul's been shipwrecked. He's been in prison. He's been stoned. He's been taken outside the city. One particular time, Paul was left outside the city after being stoned. He was left for dead outside the city. Paul has undergone a lot of suffering. So if there is anyone that can talk to us about the suffering that we may face and that we may go through, the Apostle Paul is, a, is an authority on the matter of suffering. Paul not only has dealt with suffering from others, but Paul has dealt with suffering that has been instituted upon him by God. What did Paul say? He said he prayed thrice that God would take that thorn from him. He prayed three different times intently that God would remove from him a thorn. You say, what is that thorn? Our knowledge of that thorn is not necessary. What is necessary is that we understand that sometimes our suffering is instituted upon us by other people. Sometimes our suffering that we go through is brought upon us by ourselves. And sometimes the suffering that we go through is placed upon us by God Himself. But when God does that, he does it for a reason and for a purpose. Remember what he told the Apostle Paul when he said that he had prayed three different times that God removed that thorn from him. And God told him that he was not going to remove it, but he told him, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. So if we are facing suffering, if we are going through suffering in this present day, it is not anything that God does not know and it is not anything that God's not going to carry us through. Suffering describes what happens to a person and what they must endure 
It's talking about the actual suffering itself. When you look at the word suffering, he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory, glory which shall be revealed in us. These sufferings, that very word suffering is talking about the very, uh, the very act of that suffering itself. It's not talking about suffering in general. It's talking about particular sufferings that we go through. He said, for I reckon that the sufferings, what? Of this present time. What we're in the middle of right now. What we're going through right now. I don't know what you're facing in your life just as you don't know all of what I'm facing in my life. We know what some of us are facing, but we do not know everything that each of us are going through. But may I submit to you tonight that that suffering that we're facing, that suffering that we're going through, whether it is individual suffering, whether it's suffering that we brought upon ourselves, whether it's suffering that people have placed upon us, or whether it's suffering that God has placed in our life, let me submit to you tonight that God's grace is sufficient. And God will see us through. There are some things that we need to understand tonight. Understand tonight that Paul's talking to the children of God. Paul's not talking in a broad sense to everybody in the world. He's talking to those that are the saved by the grace of God. And as he's looking at this, understand some things and some reasons for suffering in the child of God's life. Number one, if we were to consider the reasons for suffering in the child of God's life, number one, a gift of sharing Christ's affliction. You and I have been given a gift of sharing Christ's afflictions in our life. You and I are going to suffer in this life. And we're going to suffer with Him. The blessing is that as we suffer with Him, that we might glorify Him and that He might be glorified because of the sufferings that we go through. This chapter tonight, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 15 down through verse number 17, said the fellowship of His sufferings, the gospel is the gospel of affliction. The gospel that you and I present to this world is a gospel of affliction. What is it that we've explained to people about the gospel? It is that Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God. And Paul said that he counted it all dung. He counted it all, uh, all but waste that he might gain the excellency and the knowledge of Christ. He said he wanted to know him. What was the first place he wanted to know him? He wanted to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. And if you and I are going to know God, we're going to know God through the fellowship of his suffering. Recognizing that that's not talking about us suffering for Christ. 
It's talking about Christ's suffering for us. What He went through, you and I are going to know Him in the fellowship of His suffering. We're going to know Him because of His sufferings on our behalf. The gospel is a gospel of afflictions. And it is that of suffering. Why is it that? Why do we enter into sufferings? Most people would tell you, I don't know that most people, maybe I should say some people would tell you, that when you get saved, everything's going to be grand and glorious. Everything's, uh, the, 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 the prosperity gospel would tell you that once you get saved, everything's going to be all right. Your debts are going to be paid. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that we suffer with Christ. We suffer with Him. Why do we suffer with Him? Because you and I, as the children of God, when we've been saved by the grace of God, we have entered into a covenant with Christ. And we join Him not only in the good things, but we join Him also in the bad things and in the sufferings that come along with that. Paul amplifies this in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 24 when he says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Paul's saying that we're going to suffer afflictions. We're going to suffer afflictions as we are sharing in the afflictions of Christ. Not only are we going to suffer afflictions for that reason, but suffering afflictions, number two, suffering afflictions also purifies the believer. Suffering afflictions is a gift of sharing Christ's afflictions. Suffering afflictions, suffering in our life purifies the believer. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7 says this, wherein the great we greatly rejoice. So now for a season if need be, we are in heaviness through the manifold temptations that the trials of your faith, being much more precious than gold, perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You've got to understand where Peter was. If you were to look at the book of 1 Peter, you're going to find out that Peter is the apostle to those that are scattered abroad. He is going, Paul is going to the Gentiles, Peter is going to the Jews. And he's dealing with the Jews that are scattered abroad. Those that have been scattered. Why were they scattered? Because of persecution because of suffering and in the middle of all of that Peter makes the statement 
wherein the great we greatly rejoice. So now for a season, if need be, we are in heaviness through the manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold perisheth. Though it be tried with fire, might, found, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ Jesus. Peter's saying that it is those sufferings that help to purify the child of God. How does it do that? How does suffering help us to grow closer to the Lord? Because in the middle of our suffering, we must depend upon Him. I started to say I don't know how you are, but I do know how you are because you're the same as I am. Because we're all made out of the same stuff. We may not be as much in some places or as little in some places as each other, but I'll guarantee you that the sufferings that you go through draw you closer to God. The sufferings you face draw you to a point of prayer. The sufferings that you go through bring you to a place of prayer that the joys in your life might not have brought you to. God uses those sufferings to purify the believer. To cause us to be drawn closer to Him. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 28 says this, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them the evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. There are times that we face things in our life. There are times that we go through suffering in our life that we have no place to turn to but God. I mentioned to you in preaching this morning, I mentioned to you that the one thing that I have a difficult time with in my life are those things that I have no control over. I am not a control freak. I do not have to control everything. But when things happen, I've just been built this way. When things are taking place, I feel it is my place to try to mediate things. To try to make things better. Whether it be in my children's life, whether it be in my life, whether it be in my wife's life, whether it be in my mom and dad's life, my inner being wants to try to make things better. But brother, there are times when I go through things that I have no control to make better. There is nothing. I have exhausted everything I could do. I have exhausted every thought. I have exhausted every process. I have exhausted everything that I know to do. And things have not gotten better. And when it is out of my control, then I turn to God. Much to my shame, when I should have turned to God in the very onset. When I should have turned to God when... Everything started happening. Why? 
so that God purifies my life, so that God draws me closer to Him. Sometimes God allows us to go through things that cause us to be drawn closer to Him. Have you ever wondered what you would do if the great tempter were to go to God and say, what about this one? You recall what he did with Job? The tempter went to God. He said, I can't do anything. He said, have you considered? God told the devil, have you considered my servant Job? How would you like for God to say to the devil, have you considered my servant Jeff? Have you considered my servant Ricky? Have you considered my servant Charles? Have you considered my servant Lindsay? And Job in the middle of everything. You recall what happened to him? He was covered with boils from head to foot. His, his, three, his three friends that came in, when they came in to see him, when they looked at him, they could not even speak to him for several days while they sat there thinking, what do I say to him? How would you like to have three friends come and visit you in the middle of your boils, in the middle of your sickness, in the middle of your losses, and they're just sitting there and nobody says anything to anybody for a couple of days? He was not even recognizable as Job. And they sat there. What do we say? And once they did start saying something, it was this, what have you done to make God mad? When God told the devil, have you considered my servant Job? Do you know the reason why God placed Job out there like he did? Because he knew that Job would be true. And in the middle in the middle of all of that, what do we find Job saying? His, his, his very wife came to him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you give up? Job was in the middle of suffering in his life. He had lost his land. He had lost his flocks. He had lost his family. And now his wife saying, why don't you curse God and die? Job turns around and looks at him and said, you speak like a foolish woman. Job, in the middle of all of that, says this. I know my Redeemer liveth. I don't know why I'm going through all of this. I don't know why I'm facing all of this. Even in the middle of the book of Job, God takes Job out. Just him and God. And God asked Job 77 questions. He said, Job, I did this. Where were you? 
I created this. Where were you? Seventy-seven times. And Job glorifies God. God knew that the sufferings Job would go through would draw him closer to him, not push him further away. And so it is for the believer, suffering purifies the believer. Suffering also testifies to the reality of your faith. Suffering also testifies to the reality of your faith. When Angie and I first got married, just like anybody else's marriage, we didn't have all the finances we needed. We didn't have the means to meet everything that we needed to meet. And, and those around us knew that there were, there were things that we were struggling with. So much so that Angie's father even looked and said, how do y'all just keep going? Not to pin a rose on me or not to pin a rose on Angie, but I'm just saying that God's grace was sufficient even in the difficult times of an early marriage. God's grace was sufficient and we, maybe it was that we were just living on love, but we were continuing to go. We just took things in stride and just went on. Not because that's what we decided to do, but because God's grace was sufficient. God met every need. When we went to Bible college, I worked one job making $4.65 an hour and paid both of our college bills. We lived in a house, we paid the rent, we paid the power bill, we paid the college bill, and did it all on $4.65 an hour. So much so that when we got ready to graduate, I got a call from the office at school, and they said, we need you to come down to the office. I said, what, what's going on now? What have I done? What have I, I mean, we're getting called into the office. I got down to the office, Brother Charles, and come to find out we had overpaid $65, and they gave us a refund. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about God's grace is sufficient. And God meets your needs. And God takes care of you. And God does it for this reason. So that it is a testimony of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What about not only the reasons for suffering, but what about the realities of suffering? Suffering will never be more than you and I can bear. That is a promise of God. God's promises are true. God's promises are faithful. God's promises are yea. God's promises that He gives us are promises He will meet. And God promises that He will never put on us more than we can bear. Now there have been some times in my life, Brother Charles, that I wondered... There have been some times in my life when I've undergone some things and faced some things and went through some things that I've, I've actually 
looked and said, God, you said you wouldn't put any more on us than I can bear. But Lord, this is getting to the point I just feel like I can't bear it no more. And every time I got to that point, I found one truth that God picked it up and began to bear it for me. Because I couldn't. What are you saying? I am saying that the suffering that you and I face, the suffering that you and I go through, will never be more than we can bear. Not only the, that, but the Lord will never, and if we could get a hold of this, the Lord will never abandon you in the midst of that suffering. Never. Never will God abandon you in the midst of that suffering. You can look it up later on when you get home, but Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 5 tells us that He won't abandon us. He will not forsake us. Your life, number three, your life cannot be taken without God's permission. We have the promise of God that no one no suffering, no, no persecution, nothing will take our life from us without the permission of God. Have you ever wondered how all of those martyrs, all of those that were persecuted for the cause of Christ, how all of those underwent that persecution and they went to the stake singing the songs of Zion? Why? Because God had given them dying grace. Had somebody tell me one time before, I, I don't have dying grace. I thought, well, it ain't time to die yet. Because when it is time, God provides for His children dying grace. Why? Because there is no one, no thing, nothing, not, nothing in this world, no person in this world, no thing in this world can take you without God's permission. There is not, there is not a car accident, there is not a cancer, there is not a sickness, there is nothing can take you without God's permission. Why? Because you're His. Can I just put it this way? If there was something that could take you without God's permission, then God would no longer be God. You're His. They have to have His permission. Do you know and do you understand sickness has to have God's permission to do anything to us? And if that be so, then know this, that God will provide in the middle of that what you need. Have you seen those around you that seem like they died in the glory? Why? Because they were under the graces of God. And God had given His grace to them. I want us to consider also the response in suffering. I want us to consider our response in the middle of suffering. Our response, first of all, to God. How are you and I to respond to God in the middle of our suffering? The Bible tells us that we are to rejoice in suffering. 
We're to rejoice in suffering. How, how are you and I to respond toward the person causing the suffering? When God's enemies are persecuting you, and when God's enemies are persecuting me, you and I need not be terrified, but instead we should respond to them with gentleness and kindness so as to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the Bible tell us that we ought to do? When we have those that are persecuting us, the Bible tells us that we ought to pray for them. We are to lift them up. Those that are, those. in fact, the Bible tells us, those that are despitefully using us. And if you don't think that's persecution, those that are spitefully using us, we're to lift them up in prayer. And the Bible says in doing so, we will heap coals of fire upon their heads. Now don't, don't take that verse of scripture like my brother-in-law took it one time. When he said he's going to pray for them so God will put coals of fire on their heads. That's not what God's saying. God is saying that we ought to pray for them and pray for them with a, with a joyful heart, praying on their behalf. It is, it is awfully difficult. It is awfully difficult to argue with someone who will not argue. You can put forth all the effort you want to but arguing with someone that will not argue will leave you worn out, tired, and it will leave you suffering because they're not arguing back. We're not only to respond toward the person that is causing the suffering, but we need to respond toward believers in the middle of our suffering. Believers are to be found of one mind and one heart, united in one spirit, knowing that the enemy wants to separate the believers from the fold. What, did the, what does the Bible tell us that we ought to do for those that we see in the middle of suffering? We're to pray for them. We're to, what did God tell us that we are to do with each other's burdens? We're to bear one another's burdens. You see somebody going through something, you ought to be there ready to help. You ought to be there ready to bear that burden with them. Why? Because we're of the same body. Not only that, but the results of suffering. The result of suffering, if you do it God's way, will bring glory to God. It will glorify God. Once again, it purifies the believer. And it does all of these things so that the lost might be justified. Now I want us to look real quickly tonight at verse number 23. 
Paul told us all of these things and he told us all of these things between 18 and verse number 22. He talks about that suffering. He talks about those pains that we're going through. He talks about those difficult times that we're going through and he talks about them for this reason. Look in verse number 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. I want us to consider these things that Paul mentions in verse number 23. I want us to consider that adoption and that redemption. What allows us to go through the sufferings that we go through in this life is the fact that we are adopted by God. We have been adopted. They followed, that that matter of adoption followed a ceremony in in the days of, of the Greeks that Paul was writing to, those Romans that he was writing to. It followed a ceremony called Vindicto. The adoption father went to the Roman magistrate and he presented a legal case for the transference of a person to be adopted into his family. If there was a matter of adoption, he went to that magistrate and he brought forth the legal case and a legal case to adopt this person into this family. And when everything was completed, the adoption was completed. Clearly, this was a serious and impressive step. But there's something we need to understand. It is the consequences of adoption which are most significant for the picture that Paul's trying to draw in our minds in this passage of Scripture. There are four main thoughts that Paul's drawing in this passage of Scripture. Number one, he's drawing the fact that the adopted person, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all rights of legitimate son in the new family. Now, if you understand what's going on here, this will excite you. And the reason it will excite you is because what Paul has already talked about several chapters ago. Remember what I mentioned this morning, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. When you were placed in Christ, Christ went before God and brought us into adoption. We became an adopted son of God. And in doing so, we lost all rights in the old family and we gained every right in the new family. It goes a little deeper. Number two, it, be, it followed that he became heir with his new father's estate. 
even if other sons were born afterward, it did not affect his rights as a son. There have been people that you and I know and have heard about that could not have children. And they went out and adopted. And after they adopted, maybe two or three years later, they were able to have children. That naturally born biological child that came after the adopted child took nothing away from the adopted child. It is that way with God. No matter that there are others that will be born into the family after you, it takes nothing away from the estate that you and I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the law, the old life of the adopted person, now get this, the old life, according to the law, when they went for adoption, the old life of that adopted person was wiped away. It was as if it never happened. And you were placed into that adopted family never to be changed from that point forward. Everything was wiped away. Does it sound like our adoption that we have in Christ? The old man is brought to death. He was regarded as a new person entering a new life and with a new family and everything else was gone. It was starting with a clean slate. That's what you and I were given in the eyes of God. Not only that, but in the eyes of the law, it was absolutely the son of, he was absolutely the son of the new father. Roman history. You want to find out what Paul was, what Paul was writing, what Paul was talking about here? what he was referring to and what he was writing to that people at Rome, if you go back in Roman history, the emperor, emperor Claudius adopted Nero in order that he might succeed him on the throne. They went a step further in any sense of blood, he was not in any sense of blood relationship to Claudius. Claudius already had a daughter, and that daughter was Octavius. To cement the deal, this is what Claudius came up with. To cement the deal, Nero liked Octavia. And he wanted to marry Octavia so that he would be cemented into that role as the emperor when Claudius was to die. But in the days of Rome, because Claudius had adopted Nero and he had become an adopted son, although there was no blood relation. Also, there was no blood relation between Octavia and Nero. They had to go back and write a special law 
to allow Nero and Octavia to get married because the law forbade brothers and sisters getting married. You say, what's that got to do with anything? Roman law looked at that adopted child from that day forward as if it was a biologically born child. And because of that, the Romans had to write a special law so that Nero and Octavia could even get married. That's what Paul's writing about. He's saying it's that secure. It's that real. It's that cemented that you and I have been adopted into the family of God. Our our adoption began in eternity past. God chose us in eternity past. He chose to adopt us in eternity past. He predestinated us to the adoption of sons. He, He made that as a fact. In fact... In the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 5, the Bible tells us that it was His intention, it was His will for us to be the adopted children of Him. What did He tell us in John chapter 1 and verse number 12? He said, But as many as receive Him, to them give He power to become, what? The sons of God even to them that believe on His name. What a blessing what God has done for us. I'll give you this matter of of redemption and we'll be done. Redemption is a marker of disassociation and separation. It is a marker of disassociation and separation. What Paul is describing here in this redemption, it describes a payment of a price. Now get this. To ransom or to buy back or to deliver from a situation. You and I were in a situation before we were born again. We were in a situation where we couldn't do anything about it. And God redeemed us in the midst of that situation. We were were powerless to liberate ourselves. We needed His redemption. It pictures, if you will, it pictures the recalling of captives from captivity. And that ransom being paid. What was that ransom? It was bought for us on Calvary's cross when Jesus Christ bore in Himself the penalty for sin. The wrath of God for sin. Our spirit and our soul has been redeemed. Our body will be redeemed. That's what Paul's telling us here. He said, we groan. Even our bodies groan for that redemption. For that glorification. 
for that time when we will be glorified before God. The Bible tells us even the, the earth itself groans for that redemption. That redemption of that redemption of that purchased possession. Hosea went to the auction block and he found Gomer. And he gave everything he had. He gave everything he had so that he could buy her back. What had she been? She had went off into whoredoms and he went and gave everything he had to buy her back. So that so that they could climb in that wagon and he could take her home where he could spend the rest of their lives together. God has redeemed us. He told his disciples, he said, let not your heart be troubled for where I am there ye shall be also God has not forgotten us in the middle of our suffering God has not forgotten us and one day he will take that purchase position and we'll spend all eternity with him that's what Paul was trying to tell us that's what Paul was trying to give us when he told us about this, this future glorification. The present suffering, he said it don't even hold a candle to the things that are to come. The things that we face in this life don't mean anything compared to what we're going to spend eternity in. Because we as believers already have been made a new creature in Christ Jesus. God has redeemed our soul and one day He's going to redeem our body. And Paul said, therefore, he said, therefore, the sufferings mean nothing. Peter said, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. He was saying the same thing Paul said. That this life, the things of this life, the things we suffer in this life won't amount to anything when we stand before Him and when we see Him. Because when we see Him, we shall be like Him. Let's pray.